Lesson one, basic hip. Welcome to the Jazz Session. I'm Jason Crane. The Jazz Session is sponsored by Matt Rock, Murat Verdi, and Nicholas Payton. This is episode 324. Thanks to the Respect Sextet for the theme music to this show. They're online at respectsextet.com. Thanks also to Dave Vrabel, who designed the show's logo. You'll find him at twitter.com slash Vrabel, V-R-A-B-E-L. All About Jazz carries the show on their website. I appreciate that. And they've got a widget which you can install on your website that'll display the latest episode of the Jazz Session. If you do that, let me know, and I'll mention you in my weekly newsletter. Speaking of which... You can get that by going to thejazzsession.com and clicking on mailing list. You just put in your email and I think your name and your blood type and your bank account and uh, your PIN number and the names of your children, your social security number, the place where you were born, your mother's maiden name, and the name of your first pet. And each Monday, you'll receive a copy of my newsletter, uh, which goes out to a gazillion people. You don't believe that, do you? Good. Uh, but anyway, it goes out to a lot of people, and it contains information about who's coming up on the show and usually some performance notes and some poems from the other part of my life. So if that sounds like the kind of thing that you would like cluttering up your inbox each Monday, then uh, please do go to thejazzsession.com and join the mailing list. And while you're there at the website... Why don't you become a member of the Jazz Session? That's what keeps this show going. People have continued to join, which is wonderful, because although I had a goal of 100 members by uh, whenever that was, August or something, that was just a goal to make the show possible for me to continue doing, but it is not, uh, it is not the total number of members the show needs, which is much higher. Somewhere in the neighborhood of 10 or 12 million members would be good. So please do become a member at thejazzsession.com slash join. My guest today is the trumpeter Tim Hagens, who I've been listening to for decades now, pretty much since I started listening to small group jazz, I think, or, or thereabouts. But I'd, I'd never really met, and I'm not, I don't even think I'd ever seen him play until fairly recently uh, at Birdland in New York, and I really enjoyed listening to him live, and uh, enjoyed even more talking to him. Just a really fascinating guy, a very warm human being, and uh, I think we really had a fun conversation. I hope you'll agree. Before you hear that chat, though, let's hear some music from Tim's new CD called The Moon is Waiting.
my guest is the trumpeter and composer Tim Hagen. It's such a pleasure to have you on the show. Thanks for well, being it's, here. It's my pleasure to be here. A pleasure to meet you and become aware of all of your uh, great work. Yeah, well, thank you. <laughs> uh, it was great to see you the other night um, with the quartet, and uh, you were playing music from the new album, Moon is Waiting. And you talked about, uh, in fact, you said on stage about the relationship you have with the drummer in your band. And it was, right. I mean, it was blindingly obvious when you were actually <laughs> playing, too. Okay. Uh, but I'm going to let you say his name so I don't embarrass myself. And then can you tell me a little bit about that relationship? Sure. His name is Yukis Uttala. And uh, I can spell it. He's from Finland. So that it starts with a J, but it's kind of a Y sound. J-U-K-K-I-S. And his last name is Utila, U-O-T-I-L-A, Yukis Utila. And he's very well known in Europe, uh, and, and being a great piano player as well, he plays piano with Billy Cobham when he tours in Europe, and uh, it's kind of a, a fun thing as Billy was one of his early idols as a drummer. But uh, I've known Yukis since the uh, mid-80s, and he actually lived in New York uh, and played with all sorts of people, uh, his contemporaries, the Brecker brothers, Mike Stern, um, as, as well as uh, Jack McDuff, bands like that. And uh, then he went, he returned to home to uh, Helsinki in the, in the late 80s. But I met him here actually in the first in the, in the, the mid 80s. And we've played together in a, a, in a million different situations when I've been in Europe. So uh, I was, you know, he's, he's my favorite drummer. And what is it about the way he plays that you find is a particularly good fit for the way you play or the way you think about your music? Well, I think. Uh, you know, historically, uh, both of us, uh, uh, we didn't meet each other, like I said, until, uh, you know, 20, 23 years ago. But before that, we were like separated at birth. We have the same influences, uh, the same favorite records. Uh, and uh, he, he and I both have always been aware of the trumpet-drum relationship. Uh, Freddie Hubbard and, and Lewis Hayes, for example, they used to play duets together, you know. Uh, Clifford Brown, Max Roach. Uh, you know, uh, there, there's there's many trumpet-drum uh, important relationships throughout the history of jazz. And I think for me, the drums is the most important part of the rhythm section. Uh, I need that energy and that, that uh, wave of sound. And I'm not talking about necessarily about volume, but I do like it when it gets, when the volume, you know, gets up there. But it, it can be very, can be even that intensity and that wave of sound on a ballad. And it's, it's what the drummer does to me is, is very important and it affects every note that I play. So, uh, so I'm very picky about drummers, more so than uh, the other members of the rhythm section.
Yeah, I thought it was interesting that you said on stage uh, the thing about, like, I can't play an eighth note <laughs> without him or whatever. <laughs> right, which, right. I, you know, right. was kind of a, in one in one sense a joke, but in another sense, I mean, seemed to really speak to the fact that you're very locked into what's happening beneath you rhythmically right, right. while Ex- it's happening. Exactly. And, and I, I love eighth notes, strings of eighth notes. Uh, tr- I'm a trumpet player. I can only play one note at a time. And um, so that that my whole uh, or orientation is uh, is horizontal and melodic, and I love playing long eighth note lines from the bottom of the horn to the top and back down, or uh, or vice versa, or working with lines within a certain register and develop developing them and have them become larger and more expanded. Um, I'm I'm very much into melody, although a lot of the melodies I play, even uh, when they're over, you know, standard chord changes, are a little are a little, you know, unique and, and different. But that that only comes from from years of playing. I, I mean, I've been improvising since I was basically nine years old when I got my first trumpet. So that's that's quite 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 a few years to develop a melodic concept that's that's individual. And because I like playing eighth notes, you know, the drums are playing. They're playing all of the the subdivisions, but you you feel that strong quarter note feel, and so where the two eighth notes fit over that one is an incredibly important um, element for uh, for the swing, for the time feel. And I hear a lot of horn players, piano players, that they just don't hook up with a particular drummer's beat. So I think it's very important when you find a drummer. When I find a drummer, <laughs> as I found in Yukis. Where, where my eighth notes, my two, you know, the subdivision fits into his one in, in a very long horizontal, uh, way. It's, uh, it's, you know, it's something to cherish and try to make happen as often as possible, you know. So I was incredibly elated that he came over to do the record, The Moon is Waiting on Palmetto, and then also he has the ability to come over and, and do uh, various gigs with, with me as well. So it's, it's great. Yeah. You've been uh, you've been writing just about as long as you've been playing the trumpet. It seems like I've always right. known you as a writer, and uh, I wonder when you uh, when you're writing for the band, how much are you determining the the parts for each of the other musicians, and how much are you saying just giving them a sketch and saying fill in the blanks? Well, it's it's basically a, a sketch or a lead sheet, and then and and based on their personalities, um, uh, I know. You know the the kinds of things that are possible to happen, and then I have high hopes for th- totally unexpected things. Um, I've played a lot. The other two guys on the record, Rufus Reed on bass and Vic Juris on guitar, we've played a lot together over the years. Sure. And I had incredibly high expectations for the, what their personalities and what they would bring to this recording, as far as energy and ideas and interaction. And uh, and they had not really played with Yukis before, and so it's it's kind of exciting to throw that element in there as well. But but uh, Rufus and Vic were just incredible. I mean, the things that they play on this the record, it sounds like because they're so compositionally uh, involved, they sound like I wrote them. But basically, we're going off of sketches and lead sheets. And I I said at the rehearsals and in preparation. Uh, and at dinners before the the recording, I said, "Just go nuts, surprise me every every uh, second." And uh, so I think everybody felt like they could do no wrong. And that you know, you rarely feel that in a recording session that there's absolutely nothing you can do that is uh, in any way wrong. You know. So it sounds like for you, an important part of the compositional process is picking who's going to play exactly. the pieces. Exactly. And and I was uh, recently I resigned my post as the uh, 
artistic director of the Norbot and Big Band. I, I did that for 15 years, and mm-hmm. I, I, I lived here, but I commuted back and forth about 10 times a year to do different projects, and basically uh, had the same musicians the entire time. And it's it's really a luxury because on on that level of composition, it's much more involved. And I was I was trying a lot of uh, different compositional techniques and ideas and experiments the entire time. I was very fortunate to have that experience of not only writing a lot arrangements and original compositions but writing for the same people and uh so it's it's really a luxury because then you can uh then you you really know what the tendencies are how to challenge people uh how to write for their strengths and also of course to make the band better write for their weaknesses to give them experience perhaps doing things that they're not so comfortable with you know and and Yukis Utala was the drummer on many of those projects so that helped as well <laughs> and did you find a way to uh, to find those own those challenges for yourself too as a composer to to go into areas that you hadn't worked on before and uh, find new ways yeah, to stretch yourself. Yes, and, and in fact, I, I look at the, the charts that I had written before I took that position in 1995. Basically, I was trying and failing to uh, I- imitate Thad Jones, who's my uh, hero, you know, on many levels as a trumpet player, uh, very underrated as, a, as one of the great improvisers and trumpet. Uh, uh, phenoms of of all time. Plus, his writing is just—I mean—it's the the culmination of Strayhorn Ellington, uh, and and the, the rhythmic thing of Basie. I mean, it's yeah. just an, an incredible. So I was trying to imitate this this giant, and um, and I, I you know, like I said before, I, f- I failed miserably. But my own personality kind of came out in that in that way, and that's kind of where I started with the Norbotten Band in 1995, and. Um, and, you know, I listened to the, the last things I wrote for them, which is on a record called The Avatar Sessions uh, on Fuzzy Music, Peter Erskine's label. Yeah, Peter was actually on this show talking about those records, oh, okay, so folks can cool. look in the archives and, and cool. find that. So. Cool, yeah, that's, that's good to hear. Uh, I listened to the stuff I wrote for that record 15 years later, and it's a totally different uh, composer and way of thinking. So I, I think uh, that experience really helped me develop, you know, as a writer. But what I've always tried to do, no matter what I'm writing, uh, uh, especially for uh, for large ensembles, is keep the small group vibe in there. So it, it doesn't sound like a composer writing for a jazz orchestra, but it sounds like a weird, energetic trumpet player trying to create um, environments for uh, improvisational uh events to happen on a, on a very high level. So even though I'm, there were sections of several minutes of composition, it was all leading up to the next, um, you know, hopefully innovative improvised moment from somebody in the band. So Which doesn't sound that dissimilar to your small group. No, and, and that's, that's what, why I said primarily in the big band world is that's the way it always is in the small group, and that's why I basically come with just lead sheets and sketches. Sure. Uh, um, but, uh, you know, when you get into the large ensemble world, all of a sudden uh, that that vibe of improvisation and unexpected things happening with tempo changes and dynamics, and that kind of goes away because you've got so many people in the big band that, that uh, you know, uh, musical material has to be organized somehow, and, and there can be an over-organization of, uh, of that, you know.
on the uh, the moon is waiting, the first three pieces on it uh, you wrote for dancers. Yes. And to hear you talk about it on stage, it sounded like a remarkably collaborative process, not not just like here's what we want to do, take this home and go do it. It sounded like <laughs> everyone was right. involved, dancers and musicians, throughout right, the whole exactly. process. Well, it was written for uh, Michelle Brangwen, and she has a dance ensemble called the Michelle Brangwen Dance Ensemble. And uh, her her uh, concept is to integrate the musicians into the visual imagery, and she uh, commissions new music for this. It's always live music with the musicians involved in the uh, the visual presentation. Of course, musicians aren't uh, doing pirouettes or you know <laughs> turns or anything like that, but they are reacting. Uh, to what the uh, and sometimes the musicians are choreographed, but within you know of course certain limits. But uh, other times they're reacting freely to what's going on in the choreography or uh, sections of dance that are improvised. And uh, we did a uh, uh, a project with the Norbatan Big Band and Michelle's dance ensemble in 2008 and 2009 that uh, led to this music being composed. And, and she basically said, here's you know, kind of what we're going for, and uh, left it open to me to uh, write the music. And of course, I, I know her, uh, her you know, previous projects very well, and, and uh, we discuss these things uh, all the time. So I, I kind of felt I knew what to write for her. And then she takes, took the music uh, that we pre-recorded with the Norbot and Big Band in just a recording session and then choreographed. Yeah. to that. But as with my other compositions for large ensembles, I'm always thinking about how can this translate into a smaller group. And uh, and the, the first three tunes on The Moon is Waiting were written for that project, which was called Get Outside, a collaboration with the Norbath and Big Band. And uh, and they translate very easily into the uh, the small group world. You know, as is evident on the record, I think it was very successful, those first three tunes. Can you say more about what Michelle told you when she said, this is what I'm going for? What, what kind of direction do you get when you, that kind of project um, starts? Well, uh, let me think. I have to think back to our, our conversations. But um, we, uh, we talked about how to involve the musicians. And, of course, this is a big band, so we've got 17 musicians that have to be involved. And I asked some guys in the, in the band, you know, they had seen Michelle's uh, uh, dance films before because they're, they're not, she doesn't just uh, film, you know, live performances, but she actually has another, uh, uh, you know, genre of dance film where things are created especially for the camera. And they had seen some of those. And I said, okay, I want some volunteers to be a little more interactive with the dancers. You know, and of course... <laughs> This is asking musicians to do something a little bit out of, out of the ordinary. But there were a few brave souls, and so we came up with the idea to have four duets that opened the, the, uh, the evening-length piece and uh, uh, with a dancer and a musician. And then I wrote um, uh, four melodies that were repeated a few times, and Michelle choreographed to those melodies, and then the the pair, the musician and the dancer, were free then to improvise thematically from that melody and that choreography. And that happened four times, and then uh, all four melodies I wrote so that they could be played at the same time, four-part uh, counterpoint. And, uh, and so we just kind of took it from there. You know, it was uh, very interesting to, uh, to write melodies and then later develop them into uh, vertical structures, uh, you know, harmony, uh, with, with thinking about uh, choreography, although the choreography I knew would come later because Michelle always wants to have the music first, you know. 
you told a story at Birdland about uh, your piece first jazz. Yes. That really hit me because uh, <laughs> I got into this music from my grandfather, and uh, who was a saxophone player, and mm-hmm. the first show I ever went to, he took me to, and it was Al Hurt and Pete Fountain. Oh, wow. wow. Sometime in the early 80s or late okay. 70s, I don't remember. Okay. And, uh, and so you told a story about first jazz that I was hoping right. I could maybe get you to tell again because that right. really spoke to me. Well, I, I, can, I can speak a little longer because we're not, uh, sure. you know, trumpet players <laughs> on the bandstand, they tell stories and tell jokes to rest their chops a little bit right. in between tunes. <laughs> but I, I, I was a little careful not to go, you know, too overboard. But I was basically uh, uh, on a camping trip with my parents in 1970 in Arkansas in July, and it was, we were going to fish in, uh, uh, I forget, near, near Hot Springs, Arkansas somewhere, and it was just too hot. It was too hot to exist on a campsite. The fish <laughs> were going to sleep until it cooled down about 20 degrees. And my dad was a big Dixieland fan, so he said, let's pack up and go to New Orleans. And so we checked into a nice air-conditioned hotel in the French Quarter, the Howard Johnson's, I think. And um, and uh, Pete Fountain had a club uh, on Bourbon Street at that time, and Al Hurd had a club. And uh, so we went into um, Pete Fountain's club. I was 15, and we sat down, but the uh, the manager came up and asked my parents how old I was. And they said, 15, you had to be 18. So they said, I'm sorry, you can't stay. And we saw Pete Fountain getting ready to play. It wasn't a, a large place, you know. And so we started walking, and Al Hurt's club was a few blocks down the, the street, and we went in there, and they were much more friendly towards minors, you know. And uh, they asked my parents how old I was, and, uh, you know, my dad at this point said 17, wanting to stay, you know. And the guy said, well, just don't order any drinks for him. Now, Al Hurt wasn't playing at the club. It was his club, but Mongo Santa Maria's band was playing. And I'd never heard of Mongo Santa Maria. I'd, at that point, I'd, I'd been improvising, and I had some Miles Davis records. And, uh, uh, you know, I was also listening, because when I grew up, I was listening to rock and roll and Sly and the Family Stone, Blood, mm-hmm. Sweat, and Tears, James Gang. That also, and, and I was, this is before Play Along Records, so I was playing along with those records as well. Well, Mongo's band at that point, the trumpet player was Ray Maldonado. Hubert Laws was in the band. Sonny, wow. Sonny Fortune, uh, Bernard Purdy. Jeez. You know, I didn't know any of these people <laughs> at that time, but, uh, uh, they, they opened up with, and I remember Ray had black boots on and he counted off the tunes with his heel, you know, on the bandstand floor. And it was, and at Al Hurt's place, it was a revolving stage. And so I just remember the music and the vibe and how cool it looked and sounded. And uh, they played Watermelon Man. I thought that was the greatest tune in the world, you know. And um, so, I, I, you know, as I said on the bandstand the other night, I didn't sleep for several nights. And we went to a local record store and found some Mongo records on Columbia. I couldn't wait to get back home, Dayton, Ohio, you know. Uh, I remember driving back, it took like two and a half days, and I'm just sitting there in the car looking at these LPs, like imagining what they sound like. And we also went to Preservation Hall and Dixieland Hall, and I and I heard some of the guys, this was in 1970, so there were some guys that were around, uh, you know, at the, at the beginnings who were, who were still playing. Sure. And so I heard that as well and loved that just as much as Mongo's band. Uh, but I'd heard that music before. My dad had a lot of Dixieland records, and I remember seeing Louis Armstrong on TV, and and uh, you know, but this, but Mongo, the Afro-Cuban thing was just it just knocked me out. So I started playing along with those records, and uh, um, sometime in the 1990s, I was writing some tunes that were kind of reflective tunes about what inspired me in in uh, music, and and I thought back to that 
you know, family trip to uh, New Orleans and, and hearing Mongo and I, I wrote a tune called First Jazz and, uh, it, w- it wasn't anything, it doesn't sound anything like Dixieland or Mongo Santa Maria, but it, in, it portrays that energy, that electricity that I felt that made me decide to really want to pursue this music and, uh, and learn more about it and, and, and try to play it. So the tune is pretty wild. And it, it may sound more like a, you know, a, a, a modal tune that came much after uh, Dixieland, uh, you know, and it's not Afro-Cuban at all, but, uh, but it kind of portrays how I felt then and how I still feel even more so about this music and, and how great it is to be a part of it. at that moment or did you begin to suspect at that moment that oh this might be more than just something like I can do at home along with these records <laughs> maybe this is what I should be doing right I think that's when I really uh, started thinking about it because I saw live musicians I had seen musicians in, in, in Dayton playing at restaurants and uh, I'd seen the big bands came through Ohio quite a bit at that time at that time because Ohio is a very populous state and has a lot of colleges so I saw Stan Kenton and Woody Herman, Buddy Rich, I even saw Ellington and Basie several times when I was in high school and so I at that point I had I was beginning to see live musicians and some of them weren't all that much older than I was and they were working professionally with these great big bands so I, the wheels started turning and I thought yeah this is you know I also wanted to be a hockey player I, I played hockey for six or seven years Dayton had a minor league team, and it was this this league was right out of Slapshot, the Paul Newman movie. You know, it was incredible. But uh, I uh, I had an eye accident on the ice and uh, kind of gravitated away from that. But I think there is the, there's that improvisational moment that happens that I can relate to when I'm playing, for example, with Yukis on a tune like First Jazz, and when you've got the puck and you're traveling down down the ice you know there is there is a relationship to that excitement i felt both and i recognize that so i still watch hockey on tv and go to a lot of games and when i'm watching on tv i actually practice and i like use the puck as a melodic kind of uh, point and play melodies based on what's happening with the puck you know on the ice
finally, <laughs> finally, someone who made a sports analogy that was not basketball. Thank you, Tim Hagens. I would well, like to preserve for all time this jazz hockey moment because I'm well, so tired of the other. I, well, I, I don't dare say this, but and you can cut it out if you think my life would be threatened. But for me, basketball is is hockey for people who can't skate. So. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's beautiful. That's great. I may leave only that part in, actually. <laughs> Reduce the interview to that one sentence. No, but I, I understand the basketball thing. But, but hockey is on a, a much faster level, and, mm. and, and uh, the, the thinking is, is uh, you know, much quicker. Of course, I never played basketball. I only have hockey to, to talk about. Sure. But, but it does relate back to the trumpet drum thing, definitely. One thing I like about, uh, and I've always liked about, your approach to composition is that you're willing to work in a variety of contexts and be inspired by things outside the music world. Like, for example, we're surrounded by art, and it's the all the art of one artist who right. also did the cover for your record, but right. you've done things with haiku poets and obviously dance, right. and you seem just willing to look out there in the world and see what material is there to mine for musical ideas. Right, right, exactly. No, I think it's, uh, I think you're, uh, you know, uh, what I play, the the first note I play on a solo is the the latest emotional um, explanation of my life from birth up to that note. And, of course, playing that note then um, inspires, that, that note becomes part of the history that inspires the next note. And so I think uh, in order to uh, play good notes with energy and uh, melodic lines and have the, this every melody note be a, a continuing uh, kind of, uh, present and then history of your life, you, you have to have a rich life inspired by many different experiences. And, uh, and I've definitely had that, uh, so far. And, and, uh, you know, you mentioned the haiku, uh, project that was actually with the, the same artist, uh, that's done all these paintings and the, um, um, the cover art on the moon is waiting. Peter Joseph, an incredible filmmaker artist. And, and he's, he has a collection of haiku po- poems called The Way of the Trumpet. And so we do like this duo thing together where we kind of play off of each other and he, uh, and, and these haiku are always developing as well. So, uh, so it, it's, it's very interesting to, to work with that. And of course with Michelle's dance ensemble, it puts me in a total different, uh, uh, mindset musically because I have to relate it to, uh, you know, a, a physical visual thing that's happening and I'm moving as well and have to react physically to, uh, what a dancer is is doing around me and and how to make that not only musically uh, make sense what i 'm going to do but also physically make sense so it 's uh, you know it just makes the eighth notes better all of this <laughs> <laughs> is it a way also to kind of uh, push past whatever idiomatic things might come with just playing the trumpet or playing in a quartet is it a way yeah. to kind of fuel some other ideas yeah yeah exactly exactly you feel other energies that you then bring to these more standard um, you know situations. Um, I've never uh, I've never transcribed any any solos at all. I've never really studied what other players do. I've just listened a million hours to to everyone, and so I kind of know what they're doing. And um, and and that was kind of a, I did that for two reasons. One, I was when I was in school, I was very lazy and would rather sit in a room <laughs> with the lights off and just play free or play over a tune and try to grope my own way through the changes. Um, and the other uh, reason was I was afraid that I would become, I would play idioms, I would play other people's things because everybody who I was listening to sounded so great that it was very tempting to to learn those things and play them. But I, uh, uh, I, I have I have no, uh, you know, 
idioms to avoid, really. <laughs> <laughs> I can only play like myself or, you know. Do you feel like, uh, was there some, probably, again, that's probably a stupid question, but was there some defined point where you felt like, oh, okay, now I, I sound like me. Like, I, f- I think I have a personality on this instrument and as a writer mm. that I could point to and say this is kind of a Tim Higgins thing. Well, uh, I'm not sure. You know, it's funny. I uh, sometimes uh, I, I don't mean to seem, seem egotistical, but everybody does this. I go to YouTube and I type in my name because there's videos coming up all the time that people have had in storage for years, and then some new things, uh, some surprising things actually. And I've I found some Stan Kenton videos from from like the mid '70s when I was with uh, Stan Kenton, and it's hilarious to listen to my solos because <laughs> I mean I don't play anything like that now, but uh, uh, even then I uh, it was it sounded like me, you know, and I was playing the trumpet incorrectly, totally wrong. Um, which has since been corrected, but uh, so it's it's interesting to look at those things. But even then, I can see the germ of like a some kind of melodic voice that is uh, that's not coming out of transcriptions and what other people have played. I think it was really in the uh, when when I did go through an amateur change in the early '80s. Bobby Shue helped me quite a bit figure out how to play correctly. Um, and then things started to really happen. I, and instead of editing and thinking, no, I can't play that idea that I'm hearing, all of a sudden I was able to play um, more and more of what I was, was hearing or imagining. or you know. So I think sometime in the mid-'80s, uh, right around the time I came to New York, um, it, uh, it really you know, kicked in. Did you realize the need for that embouchure change because you were uh, hurting or something, or was it? Yeah, yeah, but I just couldn't. I couldn't play. I, I played long low notes with Stan Kenton for three years, and uh, and 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 I had to play pretty loud too, fifth trumpet, and um, and my early teachers really ne- never gave me any instruction in the correct way to play. They t- uh, they uh, to their credit, and I'm very glad of this. They talked about music and how to phrase and how to. Uh, to make uh, make an emotional statement, even playing out of like etude books and Arbens and and some French etudes, they talked more about the emotion behind this etude than actually how to physically, mathematically play it correctly. And then uh, then I played loud low notes with with Stan for three years, and uh, uh, you know it, it totally wrecked things. So mm-hmm. I I moved to Sweden shortly after that and lived there for five years in the late seventies up until 1981 and for the first time in my life I was playing small group gigs I was 23 at the time and uh, um, I was playing quartet gigs uh, and I w- could last about three tunes and then it was over you know I had no nothing left to play so I knew I had to get some help and I took some some uh, lessons uh, quite a few from a Swedish classical trumpet player Leif Bengtsson in Malmo Sweden southern Sweden and he started the road back and then when I moved back to the states a few years later Bobby Shu really kind of put the finishing touches on things but I'm still working on it you know it's a, it's a never ending battle because it's such a physical unforgiving instrument you uh you mentioned another person who's very important in my life and also relates to my grandfather. The very uh, He took me to the first show, which I mentioned was the Hurt Fountain show, and the first record that I ever really knew was Kenton and Hi-Fi. Oh, okay. And I still know every note of that record, <laughs> and it's still, it's like guarantee, it's like a dose of sunshine, and I just yeah. listen to that record, I'm in a good place. And the other day, I interviewed Kenny Wheeler, um, who also was very inspired by Kenton early on, and talked right. about how uh, it was 
kind of Kenton's concept of the big band as an orchestra right. that really appealed to him. Right. Uh, can you talk a little bit about your involvement and what it was that was appealing to you? About well, I, I agree with Kenny. It was, it was, um, it was a different concept at that time, even in the forties. I mean, Stan started in 1941 and, uh, basically, I mean, he was a dance band. He was a, a pop star, you know, along with Benny Goodman and, and, uh, Woody Herman and, and, um, and, but even then, and Stan was doing a lot of writing at that point for the band, you could hear this, this concept, this orchestral concept. And even in his playing, he was never really a bebop piano player. He was, he was kind of like uh, the uh, Rachmaninoff of jazz. I mean, when, when I was on the band in the 70s, we would play, again, to let the brass players rest their chops a little bit, we, we would play a ballad, Here's That Rainy Day, or Body and Soul, and he would play... Uh, an intro, a rubato intro, just solo piano to that arrangement. And uh, the modulations and the different ways to orchestrate the harmony and the, the reharmonizations. And the, I mean, you swear there were two or three piano players and some strings and some woodwinds inside that sound, <laughs> you know. So uh, I think he always had that, that concept of... Uh, of the, the big band as an orchestra, which is why he added the mellophoniums, which were basically marching French horns, and he had things like the bass sax, and uh, started with his own money, something called the Neophonic Orchestra, when he took the band off the road in the early 60s. Always kind of sponsored and promoted young composers, Bob Grettinger, you know, City yeah, of Glass. Yeah, City of Glass I is mean, just ridiculous. Oh my he, God. He, he was very uh, generous and giving, and he wanted to uh, give opportunities, anything he could to help this concept of the jazz orchestra along. And he was one of the first guys that went into the schools, you know, especially North Texas at that time and donated time and arrangements and uh, uh, visits. And, uh, you know, he really he knew that that was the future, the, 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 the burgeoning, uh, you know, jazz programs at different colleges. It's an obvious question, but when you got to Norbotten, uh and it was your turn to take the helm. Were there things from that time that you were able to apply? Yeah, def- definitely, definitely, and and not only musical things, but things about leadership and how to uh, how to kind of keep everybody involved in the music and uh, how to settle disputes or how to run a rehearsal. I mean, all these things I learned from from Stan. I, I played when I lived in in uh, Malmo and worked a lot in Copenhagen in Denmark. Uh, uh, from 1977 for, like I said, four or five years. Thad Jones uh, was there as well, and I, I worked a lot with him, not only with the Danish radio big band when he led that band, but also uh, with his own band called Eclipse and then several other projects just kind of thrown together around Europe with Thad as the leader. So with Thad and uh, and Stan, I learned uh, I learned a lot about, you know, all the aspects of, uh, you know, leading a big band and also you learn things that you don't want to do because they were not perfect and you see things that perhaps didn't work that uh, you could see how they would say things that they well-meaning things but it didn't relate to certain people and uh, just you know I I learned a lot from those experiences yeah it seems like with that many artistic personalities combined in one place that some of the non-musical things are just as important as the musical (laughs) things right right and and the non-musical things will help the the musical things sure so it's uh, it's it was a great experience
seems like Europe is a good a good fit for you and the kind of person you are. Do you, do you know why that is? What about it? Well, I, I think I'm I'm open to uh, all different types of culture and and uh, like to be you know like to have new experiences and meet people from different cultures and so so I'm maybe they feel that I'm open to their thing. I mean, I've seen a lot of Americans go over to Europe and they're just they remain Americans and wonder why it's not like it is at home where I'm. <laughs> <laughs> trying to get the best and even you know experience the worst of different uh, situations and uh, and I think um, artistically they're much more open-minded in in the jazz world um, because they're not burdened with a huge tradition like we are and perhaps because the uh, uh, a lot of musicians bands concert halls even record labels are supported by uh, government money because governments there have have deemed it important to have a vibrant arts uh, culture in their countries um, they're uh, they can think a little free more freely and they're not thinking about how am I going to sell 25,000 copies of this record because this is what the record company wants instead you might have a record company that of course that would be great to sell 25,000 copies but they're more interested in their artists making an artistic statement that adds to the uh, the, the vibrant life of that particular country so I think musicians can think a little more freely over there they don't have the pressures of uh, capitalism and commercialism and not that that's a bad thing you know but uh, uh, it's a difference you know yeah. It, it definitely is a difference. interesting to me that uh, we don't have to go down this rabbit hole in this interview, but there's a lot of there's, there's always a lot of conversation about jazz and its relationship to the blues right. and jazz as an African-American art form. Right. And I think often people have a hard time separating the, the truth of the origins of the music mm -hmm. from the truth of its now worldwide representation and the fact that many people play this music who don't come out of that tradition right, and who right. come out of totally other traditions but have found a way to make creative, improvised music that I guess we could call jazz if we need a word for it. Right, right. Uh, and so I always find it – like I really love a lot of the music that comes out of the European improvising tradition. Mm -hmm. And it's really not necessarily blues-connected. I mean it could right, be because right. anyone anywhere could listen to whatever. Right. Um, but I, I find it kind of freeing sometimes to listen to music that doesn't feel like, as you said, like it's – it its feet are firmly rooted into that right into that right, place right well i think um uh, there's the two things that i can say and one one is perhaps uh, a, a little hard to explain uh but i think the, you know when we say the blues it we kind of mean a specific thing coming from uh, perhaps coming from slavery in the fields or, or coming from the mississippi delta there's a certain sound that we associate with the blues but 
under that sound, how that was uh, uh, portrayed or how that was realized, uh, there is a, a, a cry for freedom and individualism and self-importance. And to me, that's the blues. And that can take on other musical forms than what we normally associate with the blues. I think everybody wants freedom. Everybody wants acknowledgement that they are an important part of this cosmos. And uh, de depending on whether they feel that or not, their, uh, their artistic statements may be very blues-like and very, uh, very searching and, and desiring that, that freedom. But it may uh, sound or look nothing like what we associate with, with the blues. So when I hear uh, other types of music, uh, um, uh, I hear that that vibe in there, but it doesn't sound anything like the blues. Now I hear, and and I also have to say, I hear a lot of music that is called the blues, and it has absolutely no, not it does not have that vibe <laughs> either, because it's just an imitation or what somebody thinks the blues should sound like. So mm -hmm. I think the the underlying thing is is a is a is a cry for freedom and, and uh, expression of individualism, and importance and. Uh, when I hear that, um, I recognize it as the blues, even if it's a major seven chord, uh, you know, being played by violins. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, well, nothing against major seven chords or violins, <laughs> but, uh, you know. Well, that was beautifully put. Thank you for you that. You know, but, but I, and I also think that uh, two countries that come to mind in Europe, Norway and Finland, have very strong traditions in their improvised music. And whether they would call it jazz or not, I'm, I'm not sure. Yukis Utala, the Finnish drummer, is very adamant of calling any improvised music that has anything close to a jazz rhythm section jazz. And he doesn't like these, uh, you know, the, the term improvised music or, right. you know, creative, spontaneous sounds or whatever. It's jazz, you know. But uh, Norway, you know... Uh, Jan Garbarek and, and a lot of people, they have a very individual, it's, it's not just a melodic way of playing, it's a, it's a sound, it's an emotion, you know. The blues is definitely in there, whether they want to admit it or not, but maybe if they heard my definition of the blues, they would accept it. And in Finland, it's a much more aggressive kind of sound, but it's very in, uh, individualistic to the country of Finland. They have a strong composition uh, culture and uh, very, um, you know, very kind of, uh, um, looking for a new word that I haven't used already, <laughs> but, um, you know, very proud and, and, uh, they definitely know how they want it to sound. And kind of self-aware. Yeah. Thing. And it doesn't sound like, uh, you know, standard tunes and ding, ding, a ding, but it's jazz and it's the blues, you know, so, um, it, you know, it's an interesting discussion. Finally, uh, I know the new album just came out two weeks ago, but are you uh, looking ahead to whatever might be on your compositional or performance horizon? Uh, well, um, uh, yeah, I, I always am. You know, and I'm I'm thinking about I'm I'm uh, listening to to uh, you know mostly Coltrane. I have to admit, I'm I'm just in the last couple of years, I've been pretty much ninety percent of what I've been listening to is Coltrane revisiting records that I listened to a long time ago and then also new recordings that for some reason like Sunship that I never really heard until recently and the, the reason uh, it, it sounds like um, uh, there was a gap in there but there was of, of, of me listening to jazz I was so involved in composing for the Norbot and Big Band that I basically listened to classical music for 10 or 15 years and uh, just to get ideas and, and uh, 
to keep my mind fresh trying to to take those ideas into the uh, into the the jazz orchestra world and that's kind of why my writing changed from you know imitating Thad Jones to to maybe finding more of a personality in, mm. in the composition but um but then I started listening to Coltrane again about three or four years ago, and it's like, wow, this is you know, this is how I want the rhythm section to sound. This is um, this is the freedom that I'm I'm looking for, you know. And, and why Coltrane? Because I think it was the 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 energy, the you know, the the tenor drum thing with with Elvin is just incredible. And I love the later records with Rashid and uh, and Alice, you know, and Jimmy Garrison's always there. For me, it's like the perfect. The time, the way everybody plays, uh, just it's just joyful to listen to that music. You know, whether it's fifties uh, recordings or or the late the, the late recordings. You know, so um, so I haven't really thought about tunes or started writing for the next record. I'm just trying to be an open sponge and let things let things come in. And uh, and I'm you know going around New York now a lot listening to now that I'm not traveling back and forth to Sweden I'm I'm trying to you know reconnect with people I haven't heard in a long time and and then also hear new players and uh, you know so that's great yeah I'm I feel like I'm 19 again it's <laughs> <laughs> a nice feeling well, my guest is the composer and trumpeter Tim Hagens uh, I've been listening to you for decades and it's a pleasure oh, to finally get to meet you so uh, thank thanks you. very much for doing it thanks for including me in uh, in your show and uh, I look forward to speaking with you and hanging again yeah absolutely know. my pleasure That's music from trumpeter and composer Tim Hagens and his new CD, The Moon is Waiting. I'm Jason Crane. This is The Jazz Session, sponsored by Matt Rock, Marat Verdi, and Nicholas Payton. I'm pretty sure I trilled the R in Matt Rock's name, which I don't normally do. Matt Rock. And uh, let's see, what else do I want to tell you before we all just turn this thing off and disgust? Uh, I want to tell you to become a member. It's vitally important to keep the show going. You can do it for as little as 10 bucks a month. 
or $110 a year, but if you do it for one of the two levels above that, either yearly or monthly, if you're one of the next two people to do that, you get Anthony Wilson's new DVD CD set, Seasons, which is super cool. And that's it, I think. So why not just turn all this off and get out there and support live jazz whenever and wherever you can and come back next time for another conversation about jazz on The Jazz Session. <laughs>